You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. All right, so I want to start off with some quotes to give us an idea as to the narrative that has been written in regards to unity in our country. Then President Thomas Jefferson said in his inaugural speech, Let us then, fellow citizens, unite with one heart and one mind. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. If there be any among us who would wish to dissolve this union or to change its Republican form, let them stand undisturbed as monuments of the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated, where reason is left free to combat it. In his 27 inauguration speech, then-President Trump said, At the bedrock of our politics will be a total allegiance to the United States of America. And through our loyalty to our country, we will rediscover our loyalty to each other. When you open your heart to patriotism, there is no room for prejudice. The Bible tells us how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. We must speak our minds openly, debate our disagreements, but always pursue solidarity. When America is united, America is totally unstoppable. In his 2021 inauguration speech, President Biden said, To overcome these challenges, to restore the soul and to secure the future of America requires more than words. It requires that most elusive of things in a democracy, unity. He goes on to say, With unity, we can do great things, important things. History, faith, and reason show the way, the way of unity. We can see each other not as adversaries, but as neighbors. We can treat each other with dignity and respect. We can join forces, stop the shouting, and lower the temperature. For without unity, there is no peace, only bitterness and fury. Beloved presidents have long spoken of unity, casting a vision before the American people, including the church living in America, of what it can look like to have what they have always called unity. In an article published in the AP News by Hillel Italy, wrote this actually this January 15th of 2021 of last year, he said, unity has been a theme and an anxiety for many incoming presidents who have faced economic and social crises in moments when the very future of the U.S. was in doubt. This historian, presidential historian Douglas Brinkley said that unity's always been an aspiration. It seems like whenever we have foreign policy flare-ups, we use the word freedom, but when we have domestic turmoil, we use the word unity. As we enter into Dr. King's birthday yesterday and Martin Luther King Day Monday, I thought about reflecting on Dr. King who reflected on a similar theme when he drew upon this famous novelist during his time. This is what he said when considering this idea of unity. He said this, he said, We have inherited a large house, a great world house, in which we have to live together, black and white, Easterner and Westerner, Gentile and Jew, Catholic and Protestant, Muslim and Hindu, a family unduly separated in ideas, culture and interest who, because we can never again live apart, we must learn somehow to live with each other in peace. In a real sense, he says, all of life is interrelated. The agony of the poor impoverishes the rich. The betterment of the poor enriches the rich. 
We are inevitably our brother's keeper because we are our brother's brother. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. We must rapidly begin to shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-centered society. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism are inescapable of being conquered. A civilization can flounder as readily in the face of moral and spiritual bankruptcy as it can through financial bankruptcy. This call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all men. Now, Dr. King captured this image of his notion of unity through this language that he called beloved community. Now, beloved community is a term that was first coined in the early days of the 20th century by the philosopher-theologian Josiah Royce, who founded the Fellowship, the Fellowship of Reconciliation. However, it was Dr. King, who was also a member of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, that popularized the term, invested in it with a deeper meaning. This beloved community was a theological statement. Despite how it's used today by non-theological people, it was a theological statement. For King, beloved community was a modern language for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God manifest on earth. This is what Dr. King said about beloved community. He said, in the beloved community, poverty, hunger, and homelessness will not be tolerated because international standards of human decency will not allow it. Racism in all forms of discrimination, bigotry, and prejudice will be replaced by an all-inclusive spirit of sisterhood and brotherhood. In the beloved community, international disputes will be resolved by peaceful conflict resolution and reconciliation of adversaries instead of military power. Love and trust will triumph over fear and hatred. Peace with justice will prevail over war and military conflict. So Dr. King believed that beloved community was in line with God's vision, where neighborly love demands that wrongs are made right because we see our common humanity as a people made in God's image. And I think Dr. King captures it best, which makes sense, because not only did he put his life on the line for this cause, he interpreted his understanding of unity within a theological framework, within a biblical framework. He seemed to believe that unity was an outcome of a greater commitment. Practical, Christ-like love of neighbor and enemy. Where differences are embraced as gifts. And the grace of unity is possible. Now, I'm calling it the grace of unity. Because by grace, I mean something God produces by God's Holy Spirit. It's like Dr. Willie James Jennings once wrote. There is within Christianity a breathtakingly powerful way to imagine and enact the social, to imagine and enact connection and belonging. Here's what Jennings is saying, y'all. Christianity offers a vision of unity that lasts, the kind of unity that we hunger for, the kind of unity that we're invited to embrace that comes outside of the theological story of the God who made heaven and earth and came to us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ to rescue us from the reign of sin and death and make possible human flourishing for all. Unity outside of that is not going to be a unity that lasts, beloved. So then the question stands, how does a Christian whose loyalty and allegiance has been pledged solely to Jesus as Lord and King make of such shouts 
for unity. How do we make sense of these things? How should the church understand unity? So here's what I want to do. We're going to read a lot of scripture, which is why you needed you version this morning. So let's look at some texts in the Bible that speak to unity. And I want you to keep in mind that we're reading these texts outside of their larger context, even though we'll read them in such a way that captures it, I think. There's still a danger in plucking verses out. So I want to encourage you to write them down. If you don't have a version app and read them on your own, read around them. But we will look at each one of these texts in greater detail over the next few weeks. For our purposes this morning, I just want to catch what the scriptures say about unity to make some quick observations. So John, the Apostle John, gives us the prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples and, and then for all who would come after, right? And here are Jesus' words in John 17. You could read verses 13 to 23. You could read the whole thing, but I'm going to pick up at verse 16, or verse 13. Then we're going to move to verse 17. Jesus says, Now I'm coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. Verse 17 sanctify them, talking about the disciples, by the truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have sent me, you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one. They, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So what are some quick observations? Well, that there's no true unity outside of Christ. That's one of the quickest observations we could make. No matter how much society wants to talk about unity, no matter how much we cry over unity, there has to be something deeper at work to bring us together. Jesus seems to be praying that our sanctification, our being set apart, our being cleansed and transformed, that's sanctification, kind of a $10 word for being, for being made holy, for the transformation of becoming a holy people, a holy nation as we say every week that Peter said, Jesus seems to be praying that our sanctification by God's truth and love will guide us into oneness. Oneness happens. Unity happens when we are guided by the truth of God's word and the love of God in Christ. To be sanctified by God's truth and love is to embrace a commitment, beloved, to seeing the world the way God describes it should be and pursuing this vision of Christ-like love which is to say self-giving and self-emptying love for neighbor and enemy. So here's what Paul says about unity, which is important because the series is going to focus on the letter written to Philemon. So that's going to be our base text is the letter to Philemon. So you can start reading through that. But first, Paul wrote this to the churches in Colossae, Colossians 3, verses 12 through 15. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, Put on compassion. That's our choice. We put it on. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another if any has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. 
And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Beloved, unity seems to me, according to Paul, is the outcome of the practical actions of Christ-like love in the form of commitments to humility, compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, or you could say long-suffering. We'd be willing to suffer long. Bearing one another's burdens, bearing with one another, giving each other grace and mercy, staying in relationship when it gets hard, right? Forgiving one another. And then he says, above all, put on love. Put on love. We have to put it on. We have to choose love. Of course, according to Paul, we have to choose compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Our strength comes from the Spirit. So the strength of unity comes from God in us. The choice is ours, and the choice isn't to pursue unity. The choice is to pursue love. Unity is the outcome of the practical actions of Christ-like love in the form of these things like humility and compassion and kindness and gentleness, forgiveness. Love and love's practical application is what makes unity possible. So Paul wrote this to the churches in Ephesus, and he was expanding on the heart of Ephesians 2, verse 11, I think. But he writes this in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. This is the last lengthy text we're going to read, so stay with it, please. Stay with me. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the call that you've received with all humility and gentleness. There it is again, with patience, bearing with one another in love. There it is again. He's repeating himself. You think I repeat myself. You should read Paul's letters. Making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. How, Paul? Through the bond of peace. Through this bond that comes from a commitment to shalom, to peace, to human flourishing. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And then he goes on to say, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. For what reason, Paul, verse 12? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be like little children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. In other words, Paul might even say, if we pursue the way of God and Jesus Christ, and we won't fall into the trap of thinking that any of society's notions of unity is better than the notion of unity that come from the kingdom of God which Dr. King is a fairly good signpost to call it beloved community. Verse 15, But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, which is Christ. From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love. How? By the proper working of each individual part. So unity does start with me and you individually as a part of this community. I choose love. You choose love. We choose love. When you and I choose love and compassion and gentleness and kindness and, and patience, long-suffering and forgiveness, when we choose the things that we know God has 
told us to choose, has summoned us to choose by the power of the Spirit, something happens between us, and that's something that happens between us is unity. Unity comes when a church is committed to something other than unity <laughs> and is committed to what produces it. Unity for unity's sake rarely works for long. A compelling mission, that's the driving force for unity. So here's why I think this series matters. We live in a moment when cries for unity are heard from many places, especially cries for national unity. We want unity as an answer to the division, but that's the problem. We want unity as an answer to the division rather than as an outcome for love. The same folks who cry for national unity are the same folks who dehumanize the other party or demonize those with whom they disagree. Even some of our neighbors, I've heard it. I just wish we were more unified, and then we dehumanize and de demean, or even at worst, demonize the other person, like in the same paragraph. And that's not going to produce unity, y'all, because that's not love. And the minute a line in the sand is drawn, and those who find themselves crying out for unity find themselves in the discomfort and disruption of the other side of the line, that's when they start crying out for unity. See, we must discern what people mean when they say unity, beloved. So I'm with Beth Moore. Beth Moore said this. She said, if unity means never exposing to the light or calling to question ongoing wrongdoing or malfunction, we may be unified in something, but it's not Christ. Loyalty to Him trumps Every other loyalty. I say this for love's sake. Loyalty to Jesus above all others is for all our sakes. Beloved, we are called to unity out of, not in spite of our differences. What we learn from God as creator is that God does not do uniformity. We see this in the differences found in creation, humankind, etc. God does not work toward preservation, but toward transformation. I mean, even in Acts 2, we see how the church is born as a community of different and diversity who find equality and equity in the Spirit whose unity comes through the love of Christ and is proclaimed and practiced in many and diverse ways. God has a different kind of unity in mind than we often do. And we can expect unity to come from God. We cannot expect unity to come from uniformity or the limitation of differences, even if we find ourselves on the other, line, on the other side of the line of disruption and discomfort. Beloved, difference is a gift. Difference is a gift to prevent uniformity as false unity. Difference is a means by which we keep power in control, that we keep, that we keep power in check that our desire to control others, which is the way of the reign of sin and death, is, is limited. Differences is something to be embraced, not something to be overcome. The differences of race, gender, etc., are not problems to be resolved, but something to be received. Differences are important ways of assuring that God's gift of difference and diversity continue. The differences are in themselves the gifts. 
that make unity possible. They teach us how to love more fully and freely. Differences liberate us from ourselves and our need to control and manipulate others because we're not all the same. Differences teach us the way of mutuality, of mutual submission is reflected in the triune life of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Differences lead us to working out problems with peacemaking and truth-telling and love rather than violence and force. Differences teach us to be compassionate and merciful as our Heavenly Father is compassionate and merciful and to forgive as we've been forgiven. Differences teach us the way to divine hospitality. We learn to love the other as we love ourselves. But we can't embrace the differences, beloved, if we're trying to pursue some sort of unity outside of the boundaries of Scripture. So the story in the text that will guide our conversation in unity over the next several weeks is going to be Philemon. And I think this letter imagines a countercultural way, especially for its time, to live in society as we learn about Paul and Philemon and Onesimus, who was this enslaved man who had now become a Christian brother, that Paul is saying should be welcomed fully into the church as one who truly belongs in equity and equality as a member of God's household. And so in this letter, I think we're going to find, if you read it over the next couple of weeks or over the next several weeks over and over again, we should really know this letter by the time we're done. In this letter, we'll find many social descriptions at work Many social descriptions that help us imagine how Christian unity can work in a society divided by class, ethnicity, politics, and economics. In this letter, there's the mentioning of apostle, prisoner, enslaver, enslaved, sister, brother, child, father, co-worker, fellow soldier, fellow prisoner, Lord God. All of these descriptions are there. All of these you will hear. And you, you won't hear everything we want, us, want to hear. We won't hear some of the descriptions that we desperately want to hear. But these descriptions are broad enough that it will help us see that this is a complex world that Paul is writing to. And it's a world that's similar to our own. And I think Philemon is a text about the unity that comes from a commitment to the vision that God has for all of us. It's a vision that is led by Christ-like love. This self-giving and self-emptying love for neighbor and enemy. It's a vision that requires a commitment to compassion and mercy. It's a vision that invites the Christian community to take the way of Jesus seriously. To embrace the discomfort. To live in the tension. To expose the wrongs. And above all, do so by love and because of love. It's a vision that makes us a deeper people. And it can liberate us from the division. A church that takes the way of Christian unity will never be comfortable. A church like this will be committed to doing the hard work of drawing close to the other, despite the fear and vulnerability. A church like this will resist the urge to sidestep the disruption of transformation with desperate calls for unity that come from society. Instead, a church like this will step forward into the fray of the reign of sin and death to join the marginalized neighbors in their struggle for dignity, worth, and empowerment and believe that unity is the outcome of solidarity with those pressed down by the troubles and trials of suffering and injustice, not conformity to a cultural Christianity committed to the comfort of, quote, not causing division. Beloved, unity is the outcome of Christ-like 
cross-shaped, resurrection-believing love. And I think Paul's letter written to Philemon about the enslaved Onesimus, who's become his Christian brother, can teach us something about how differences are a gift and the grace of unity can come only through the equality and the equity, the love and the compassion that Christ has shown us that we are willing to give to the other. So my hope is that you will think through this idea of unity, that you will see through the shallow calls of unity that are really more about me not being uncomfortable with differences than the kind of unity that God calls us to that sees differences as a gift. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.